me? Father, we're grateful again to be able to come together in this place and to sing praises to you and to be drawn closer together through our singing together these songs of faith that not only form uh, the way that we think about you, help, help to form the way that we think about you, but, but also, Father, draw us together in our common goal of worshiping you with every part of our being. We're so grateful, Father, for the ways that you change us and the ways that you bless us and the ways that you make yourself known. And we pray that in the next few minutes as we press our mind into this text that you will give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray this in the name of the one who has saved us and loved us and brought us into your presence. Amen. Scripture up on the screen. Psalm 145, beginning with verse 3. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Finish it with me. His greatness no one can fathom. Let's say it again. His greatness no one can fathom. The New American Standard that was updated in 1995 says, His greatness is unsearchable. One of the things that we discover when we read the Bible is that there's a lot that we can know about God. We can know some things about His basic character. We can know some things about His nature, the way that He interacts with us, His covenants, His holiness, His love, His anger, His wrath, His judgment. If you read the Bible long enough, you will get to know the God we worship. But as knowable as God is and as as uh, revelatory as the Bible is, as we read it and spiral again and again into it, there are still these things that are unsearchable. There are these things that are unfathomable about His being. Because He is infinite and we are finite, there's going to be a limit to what our minds can comprehend about the infinite God. And about the time that you think you have God figured out, whether it's in Scripture and you're reading text after text after text, or it's God intersecting your life and the kinds of mountaintops and plains and valleys that you enter emotionally and spiritually and intellectually in, there are going to be these times that when you think you have God figured out, He's going to do something and you're going to scratch your head and you're going to go, wow, I didn't see that one coming. Or, wow, God is completely beyond my knowing every part of Him with, without any doubts or, or without any, any blank spots. And you realize in moments like that that you cannot put God in a box. That there is no box that we, we have either intellectually or theologically that, that is able to contain the greatness of the God who not only fills but has created the entire universe. Now we're going to go back and look at this third uh, episode in the life of Hezekiah where he becomes ill and things are looking pretty bad. In fact, if you drop down to verse 7, just right after James's reading, where that stopped tonight, we read that there is some kind of a boil that is causing this illness. And it's got to be a doozy of a boil to be causing death. And the prophet Isaiah is sent to Hezekiah with this message. He says, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order, because you're going to die and you will not recover. Put your house in order. You're going to die. You are not going to recover. In other words, what you're afflicted with 
is something that is so dire and so profound that you're not going to come out of this alive. You will not recover. You will not recuperate. You will not rehab. Hezekiah, get your house in order. You're going to die. Now Hezekiah is obviously going to be upset like we would all be upset. I mean, if if uh, there's a knock at your door and you've not been feeling very well, a little under the weather, you think it may be the allergies, and it's me showing up in a suit. And I say, the Lord has sent me to your house to tell you, you need to get your house in order. And these things that you're suffering right now, you're not going to recover. You're going to die and you're not going to recover. I tell you, that's going to be a blue day. And Hezekiah is upset at this piece of bad news from the prophet and he begins to pray fervently that maybe God will change his mind. And Hezekiah, you know, is, is, is looking in the mirror and he sees his own mortality. And so he prays, maybe God will change his mind because Hezekiah has a whole lot of memories and a, and a, lot, of, of, of a, back, a lot of backlog of the great things that God has done in the past that form his hope and faith that God will listen to him. And so Hezekiah prays about how he's always tried to do great things for God. I've always walked before you in truth and with a whole heart. And I've done what is good in your sight. And then at the end of verse 3, Hezekiah weeps bitterly. Now the word of the Lord has come through his great prophet Isaiah, the son of Amaz, says, you need to put your house in order. You are going to die and you're not going to recover. And Hezekiah weeps and he prays. And the unexpected thing happens. Before Isaiah is even able to get out of the door, outside the, the, the middle courtyard, he is told by God to go back into Hezekiah. And Isaiah tells Hezekiah that God has heard your prayers, Hezekiah, and God is going to heal you. And not only that, you know how much time you have left. God is going to give you an additional 15 years of life. Now wait a minute. God says you're going to die. You're not going to recover. And Hezekiah says, remember what I've always tried to do with my life, God. And he weeps before God. And God says, you know, I've changed my mind. I've heard your prayers. I've seen your tears. I'm going to add 15 years to your life and, and heal you. You know, it's kind of this amazing passage, this amazing text, where God sort of looks down on Hezekiah and goes, Hezekiah, I mean, goodness gracious, if you're going to cry for, you know, crying out loud, you know, that's kind of my weak spot. Changes his mind. It sounds absurd, but that's sort of what happens here. Now, there's this wonderful passage about prayer in James chapter 5 over in the New Testament where James writes to people in the church who are... A church is just filled with people who are, who are really struggling. They're struggling. There, there are those that are ill. There are those that are struggling with their faith. And he says that a prayer that is offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and, he has, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him that the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. I think James, the brother of Jesus, as he writes these words about prayer in the New Testament, there are in the back of his thinking, in the back of his mind, a lot of prayers in the Old Testament like this one that have been answered. But here's the thing. What about all of those times when God doesn't respond the way that we want Him to even though there are a lot of tears and a lot of faith and a lot of crying out to Him and, and a lot of it coming from people that are incredibly faithful? I mean, lots of times people cry out to the Lord and God does answer. 
there was a there was a time where our our church up in Kansas, a kind of a small church of about about 180 people, that was just being ravaged by cancer. I mean, every time we turned around, every time we came together as a church, there was another announcement. Somebody else in our church family was suffering with cancer, and the and the outlook was bleak. The outlook was 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 not very cheerful at all in that church. And so one night the church decided to call together a, a, a meeting after church that evening. After the evening assembly was over, everybody that could, everybody that was available, everybody that had a heart and a mind to do it was invited to go downstairs into the basement of that church and to spend as much time as they could, an hour or two was basically what it ended up being, but an hour or two in prayer, praying for people in our church family that had cancer and was struggling. And by the end of that night, the church has just prayed over everybody and there were tears and there were testimonies of, of people talking about how much faith they had that God was able to do this if it was His will. And within days and weeks, things began to change health-wise in that church family. I remember there was a, a family, the Sinclair family, that had moved to the east side of Kansas because of the medical condition that... Uh, that that Mr. Sinclair was in and the, the medical needs that he had were better met in the eastern side of the state up towards Kansas City. And it, his body was just ravaged with cancer. I mean, was, the cancer was, was in, in, in many ways sort of deforming him. And, and uh, there was this moment where the doctors came out and said, you know, uh, we don't know what happened to the cancer. It was there yesterday. We can't find it today. I mean, there are times when people cry out to the Lord and God answers the prayer the way that they want Him and ask Him to do it. But then lots of times people cry out to the Lord and God does not answer them in the way that they want. They don't get the extension. They don't get the extension, which means that the unspeakable pain is going to come into their life. And lots of times people have come up to me, I know that they have come up to our other ministers, our shepherds in this church, and have said, you know, we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we cried and in full faith we asked God in full faith and we didn't get the extension that we asked for. What about those times when the flesh, when the thorns in the flesh are not removed? What about those times? One thing that I do know is that living in the kingdom of God does not prevent pain and weakness. Anybody who tells you differently is not telling you the truth. But living in the kingdom of God does not prevent pain and weakness. Some years ago, I've told some of you this story before. Uh, some years ago, in the early 90s, while we're living in Brazil, I get a phone call. We're living in the center part of the state in the capital. We get a phone call from a missionary from the conservative Christian church, a fellow by the name of David Bayless, who's calling us to tell us that one of his colleagues has had to fly back, an emergency flight, back to the United States uh, he was ill. It's been discovered after he got to the States that it's cancer. They're giving him just weeks to live. And that his 15-year-old son, who had stayed behind in Brazil because of school, is flying to go to be with his dad in the last couple of weeks that his dad has on earth. He's flying in. He's 15 years old. He's got about an eight-hour layover in Brasilia. Would you mind just kind of meeting him at the airport and making sure he gets on the right flight? I said, uh, Absolutely. And the thought of this 15-year-old kid just kind of flying by himself and spending all that alone time in that airport, that eight-hour layover, just kind of broke my heart. And 
I decided I just cleared the, the schedule for that day, and I would just go and be with that boy. So I found him, picked him up, uh, took him out to lunch, took him back to the house. We talked a couple of times. Uh, he, he brought up the mortality of his father, and we were able to talk about it. We prayed some together. Uh, spent the day together and, and put him on that airplane and never, ever saw him again. A uh, couple of weeks later, got a phone call from this missionary up in the northern part of the country, David Bayless again, saying that the father had died and thanking me for taking care of the boy while he was in, in, in town and, and making sure that he got on the flight. And I said, no problem, uh, no problem. Well, we fast forward a couple of years. We're now in Lawrence, Kansas. We're, we're up in the northeast part of the state. My middle brother, the brother whom I love, is getting married in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And we're delayed because of some bad weather, and it ends up that we're going to have to drive all the way through the night from Lawrence, Kansas, the northeast end of the state, to Albuquerque, New Mexico for this wedding. We're going to have to drive all the way through in one night. And about 4 o'clock in the morning, we spin off of the road. We go backwards across the highway into a barbed wire fence. Nobody is, is hurt, luckily, uh, and, and, and we're blessed with, with no injuries. But, but that Nissan is pretty beat up. And we drive it into Dowhart, Texas at 4.30 in, in, in the morning. And in Dowhart, Texas, they get up early because there's cows to take care of and there's, there's cows to feed, but they're not up at 4.30. The only guy that's up is a deputy sheriff that we run into at a convenience store. And I drive in, that car limps into Dowhart, Texas, in the middle of nowhere, Panhandle, Texas, and I walk up to that deputy sheriff who's eating a donut. Literally, he's eating a donut and drinking a cup of coffee. And I walk up where he can see my hands at 4.30 in the morning. And I say, my name is Mark Absher. I'm a preacher for the Church of Christ in Kansas. We need some help. And I explain the situation. And he goes, as chance would have it, young man, I just happen to be a deacon in the conservative Christian church here in town. And we have a room with some couches in it. You can spend a couple of hours resting there. And then you can get on the road. We'll show you where the garages are and you know, get you on your way. And I say... That is just a, a wonderful thing. And so we get our kids, we get everybody together, we drive up to the church, we open up the doors, and whose picture, portrait, should I see in the foyer? But David Bayless, the missionary from northern Brazil who had called me just a couple of years earlier about the, his colleague who was dying. And I go, I, I know David Bayless. In fact, and I told him the story, and the, police, the deputy sheriff said, you know, we know about that situation. It was very, very sad. And uh, the next morning, we're able to get on our road and get the car fixed and head on off to, to Albuquerque. Not without a lot of tears from my mother, though, who scared to death. It's not, you know, the, the God who is able, you know, let's not be naive here. The God who is able to, to connect all of the dots where a, a, a missionary in the middle of nowhere, Brazil, is able to connect to a missionary in the capital city who finds himself years later in the middle of nowhere, Panhandle, Texas, and connects to a church that's able to take care of him, as, as great as he has ordained all of that stuff to be tied together, the God that has that kind of power, does he not have the power to keep us from having the wreck in the first place? I'm reminded of this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Paul is struggling in front of a God who has the power to keep this thorn in the flesh from doing any more damage to him, suffering to him. And in verse 9, he says, and, and, and God said to me, Jesus said to me, 
My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. A couple of things. I think when you find yourself in in those moments like Hezekiah, when you find yourself in those moments, those valleys, those dire straits, you always turn to the God who never stops being sovereign over your life. I mean, there are times when you're not going to understand the movement of God. There are going to be times when God is unfathomable and His ways are unsearchable. But you always turn to the God who has revealed Himself without a shadow of a doubt as sovereign and never stops being sovereign over your life. Now, what in the world does the word sovereign mean? What it means is that God is never not in control of your life. He's never not in control of your life. God never runs out of authority to act in your personal valley. God is still the most active, still the most forceful, vigorous, and potent dynamic in your life. And the simplest lesson of faith is this. Regardless of where you are, you look to God. You look to God. And Paul recognized that it was not only God who was at work in his life, but it was also Satan. And he was, and he was faced with a choice. In the middle of this suffering, in this dark place, in this valley, what is it that I'm going to do? What he does is exactly what Hezekiah does. And not with any kind of you know, false you know, bravado, Hezekiah weeps. Paul begs three times. Take it away, take it away, take it away. Hezekiah in his tears says, change your mind, change your mind, change your mind. The answers were different, but the God was the same. We always look to God and recognize that it's God who is at work in our life at all times. And then the last thing, and we're done. One of the things that you anticipate is a change in heart while you're in the valley. You anticipate a change in your heart, a change in attitude a change in perspective while you're in the valley. Sometimes the greatest lessons are the ones that are learned in the moments of weakness. Because when we're weak, we learn and we we not only choose, but we learn what it means to really lean on God. When we find ourselves in that valley and we're faced with that choice, what are you going to do? Are you going to try to figure this out or, 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 or dig your way out of this thing by your own power and your own intellect? Are you going to trust God? Because God is always sovereign. There's never a moment that God is not at work in your life, not in control of your life. When we learn from choosing God to lean on God, then what happens is we experience a change in heart. And we're able to say, as Paul said, when I'm weak, I'm strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. That's more than just theology. What Paul is talking about is how he is being revolutionized by this experience in his relationship with God and in relationship with his own faith in the middle of that dark place. To be able to say that when, when I'm weak because of God, the parts I understand and the parts I, I do not understand, but because of God's sovereignty and God's power and my trust and my faith, in in the holiness and the promises of God, even when I'm weak, I'm strong.
Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And we're going to praise that God whose ways are unsearchable and whose ways are unfathomable, but whose ways are always to be consistent with His His promises, to always love His people, to always do what is best for His children, just as a father would do, to always do what is best for the sheep, just as a, a shepherd would do in every situation. And sometimes we don't understand it, but what we do understand is that God is always at the center of our life. And that is what we tether ourselves to, regardless of the situation. And while we sing this song, if there are ways that we can minister to you, some of our our spiritual leaders, our shepherds, are going to be down here at the front, our elders. And if there are things that are weighing on your heart or there are things that need to be righted in your life, there are things that need to be prayed over by, by your church family and by your spiritual leaders, your shepherds, then this is the time to make those needs known and to do it now as we stand and sing together.